Good morning, First Free. My name is Steve Odie. I'm the junior high pastor here, and I'm excited to be with you this morning as we start this little mini-series on Easter and with Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. And one of the things I love about working with junior high students is when those light bulbs go off, when they understand something new about the Bible and just like, oh man, my head just exploded, I learned something new, or they understand something new about God and his character or his love for them, or better yet, when they take something that they knew about the Bible and they understand about God, and all of a sudden they realize how that intersects with their life, and all of a sudden the, the light bulb goes on and transformation happens. And I'm hoping that this morning, as we look into God's Word, and as we talk about what it means and how it impacts us, that we'll have some light bulbs this morning, that some of you will walk away with, I've never thought about it like that before. I never thought about that aspect of my relationship with God in quite that way before. When you came in this morning, you were handed a puzzle piece. And uh, I'm sure what some of you did during the greeting time, you introverts decided to not talk to people and look at your puzzle piece and figure out um, what it might be part of, or maybe you even got with some of the people around you and said, okay, do they fit together at all? And how does this work? And some of you came in and you immediately, after you got your puzzle piece, you felt more special than the rest of us because you got an edge piece. And you're like, ah, yes. And some of you, maybe, did anybody, was anybody lucky enough and special enough to get a corner piece? Anybody have a corner piece? Oh, you are more special than the rest of us. That's awesome. So, but the thing that's hard about a single puzzle piece is to know where it fits and what the bigger context is. And um, I have four daughters at home. Oh, there goes my puzzle piece. I have four daughters at home and... Um, they love to do puzzles, and we have, uh, down in our toy room in the basement, we have all kinds of puzzles and everything, and when we go down there to try to put things away, it's always a, a marvelous day when you go down and you realize that puzzles have been taken apart, but not put back in the right box, and just kind of left in a, a pile. So you, you're trying to put things away, and you have part of Tinkerbell, and part of Dora the Explorer, and then you have something that goes to Noah's Ark, and you have a Thomas the Train, and you're like, ah, this doesn't fit together. The best, though, is when you're pulling it apart and you realize there are like five Tinkerbell puzzles that are all mixed. Like, okay, what do I do with this? I've got, this is no good. But without context, without seeing the, the picture on top of the box, having a single puzzle piece can be kind of confusing. And for some of you, maybe your puzzle piece is just a single color. It's all gray or black or blue. And you're looking at this thing thinking, I'm not sure what to do with this. And life is like that sometimes. Sometimes we end up in situations where we say, I'm not really sure what to do with this. Now, maybe if you've been to a different country where you didn't know the language or you didn't know the culture, you found yourself in a situation where there's stuff happening around you and you're kind of like, I'm just going to stand here because I don't really know what's going on. And maybe for some of you, that foreign culture that you visited was your in-laws. And you got there, you're like, hi, oh, this is a whole other world. I'm not, I'm not speaking from experience, but I'm just, you know, hypothetically, of course. But sometimes in life, we... We just need context. And man, if you have teenagers, oh man, you need a lot more context. You feel like you hear, you hear your kids talking with their friends and sometimes you're not sure what the bigger picture is. And if, then you, if you look at their phone and you see, I really don't know what's going on now. And you do the hashtags and emojis and what is going, we need more context to understand what's going on. And that's what's going on with our passage today. Now, if you've been going to church for a while and you were getting ready this morning and you thought, oh, it's Palm Sunday you could have called it what passage we were going to look at today, right? And you're correct. We're looking at Jesus coming into Jerusalem. No shocker there. But I think there's some, a lot more puzzle pieces about this passage that 
will help fill in some of the details. Because I grew up going to church, and I remember looking at this passage every Easter season and just being kind of confused. It's like, okay, there's palm trees, but I thought those were in Florida. And why are people shouting? And why are people throwing their coats? I just didn't understand. And as we understand a little bit more of the context of what's going on, I think things start to make a little bit more sense. And before we jump into the passage this morning, I want to remind you about something. And that's that the, that's that the Bible is real people in real places, in real times, interacting with a very real God. This stuff isn't made up. It's not a fairy tale. There's context in history and there's things that we can look to to help us understand when we have questions, what's going on, so that we know that we can depend on the Word of God. So this event happened in the first century in Jerusalem. And part of the context, another puzzle piece, is that the Roman government was in charge at this point. They were ruling over Israel. And they were in your face. They were in your face with taxes. They were in your face with um, every aspect of authority or military. Rome was just right there making sure that you did exactly what they wanted you to do. And part of the dynamic is that, that Rome allowed the Jews to kind of to, to do religion the way they wanted to, kind of as long as they didn't cause too many problems. As long as there wasn't too much friction, Rome kind of decided, you know what? The Jews are very passionate people. We're just going to kind of leave them alone. And if they stay contained in the box, then we're okay with that. Um, but if they step outside of that box, that's a different story. But let's just kind of leave them alone. And part of the Jewish faith was a series of seven festivals throughout the year that God instituted in Leviticus 19. Now, the thing that I think is so cool about, about how this is set up is so what God did was he said, There's, here's seven festivals that you're going to celebrate every year. Basically, God said, thou shalt party, and here's what it's going to look like. Here's those seven parties you're going to have. And every one of those parties was an event that was designed to point people back to either something in God's character or something God had done for them. So seven times, I mean, think about that. How much different would our lives be if seven times a year we stopped what we, what we were doing and we had an experience that we were reminded as a group of, I mean, for days on end, of this is who God is and this is his character and this is what he's done for us. And I love that rhythm and just that cadence of life of being reminded of God and his love and his action on our behalf. And there were three of those festivals that were called pilgrimage festivals. They were essentially God-sanctioned family vacations. And if you were able to, you were, you were to travel to Jerusalem for these festivals. And there were three of them. The first one took place in the fall. It was called Sukkot or the Festival of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were all the same, the same thing. And this was in a week-long, like an eight-day celebration where you'd come into Jerusalem and you would spend time uh, it has nothing to do with the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It was all about remembering how God had saved the people out of Egypt. And as they were wandering in the wilderness, God provided for them. So there were themes of God's provision and him giving us what we need. And that happened in the fall. And then in the spring, there was Passover. And that was actually a couple of the festivals kind of combined into, they were combined into one, uh, one week-long event. And that happened, that's in the, in the passage that we're going to look at today. And then seven weeks after Passover, there was an, there was an event called Shavuot, which it, that word isn't in the Bible, but the word Pentecost is. And the reason in Acts that all the Jews are in Jerusalem at that time is because of this festival. 
And there's a very interesting series of events that starts to happen, um, particularly in the, in the last few months of Jesus' life, that kind of build up in Palm Sunday, the event of Jesus entering Jerusalem is, is part of that. So in the fall, when, they were, when everyone was in, in Jerusalem for, for Sukkot, there was an eight-day celebration, and par- there were two very interesting parts of this, of this festival. One of them was a, a ceremony that involved water, that they would, they would pour a whole bunch of water as a reminder of God providing for us, God providing us for everything that we need. And when this was happening, that's when Jesus stood up in, in John 7 and 8. He, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And people started asking questions, like, wait a second, we're, we're talking about God being the one that provides what we need, and Jesus just said that we should go to him if we're, what is Jesus saying? And then later in the week, there had been um, an area of the temple that there were these huge candles that had been lit the whole week, and people would walk through this, this, uh, this courtyard, and then on the last day, these candles were, were extinguished, and people, to get to where they needed to go, had to walk through this darkened courtyard, and that's where Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And people say, wait a second. So earlier in the week, Jesus said this, and now Jesus is, what is he saying? And they're asking questions about who is Jesus, which are great questions to be asking. And then December comes, and Jesus is in Jerusalem uh, for Hanukkah. And in John 10, it talks about, it, it's the Feast of Dedication is what it's called. And Jesus is there, and he's, he's having this, this debate, and there's all kinds of questions from the religious leaders about, Jesus, where exactly do you come from? And who is your father? Who is this guy that you keep speaking of? And they get into all kinds of questions and debate. And it says in John 10 that many Jews began to put their faith in Jesus. So this momentum is building that people are asking who Jesus is. And now they're on the road um, down to Jerusalem. Jesus was coming down from Galilee. And he comes through Jericho. And he heals a blind man on the way, and the crowd's like, wait a second, something is going on. We've been asking about who Jesus is, and people are asking if he's the Messiah, and we just saw him heal a guy who was born blind. Something is going on. So we're going to, with that, we're ready to jump into our text of Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And if you're on the, the Version app, you can open that app up and hit more at the bottom right corner, and then click on events, and you can find us there. As I tell junior high students, often it's on page 812 in my Bible. Doesn't help you at all, just in case you were curious. So in, in Mark chapter 11, that does help you. Mark 11 verse 1 is where we'll begin. But let, let's pray before we, we read God's word. God, thanks so much for the gift of your word and thank you that it is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness and helping us learn how to follow you. I pray that as we look into your word this morning that you would teach us that you would encourage, encourage us, and that you would challenge us. In your name we pray. Amen. So in Mark 11, verse 1, it says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, 
tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. So as we read through this passage, again, I want to remind you that the Bible is real people in real times and real places interacting with the real God. So try to put yourself in the story and think about how would I have been feeling and what would I have been thinking if I was there? I mean, imagine if you were one of those disciples and Jesus said, hey, I got a job for you. I want you to go in that town and there's going to, and he describes the whole thing and there's a donkey there and I want you to go take it. And imagine the conversation on the way to get the donkey. It's like, what exactly are we doing? And are we, does, does Jesus know the guy who owns the donkey? Does he not own the, how, how, does, how does this work? And then you get there and you're kind of looking, I mean, wouldn't you be, if you were, seriously, you're looking over your shoulder like, oh, okay, nobody's watching. Okay, go quick. You don't get, and then you get the donkey and somebody asks, what are you doing? The Lord needs it and will return it soon. And they say, oh, okay, see ya. And you're like, what just happened? This is crazy. And you take the donkey and you're, and wouldn't you just be on the way back to Jesus just talking with the other person like, what is going on? This is crazy. This, I've, never, I've never had an experience like this before. And they get back and they, and they take it to Jesus. And we'll, let's pick it up in verse 7. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in highest heaven! Now this is the part of the, of the, of the whole story that, when I was a kid, I just didn't understand. Because if you look at this, I've, n- I've never been in an environment where, so- where somebody sits down on anything, whether it's a horse, a bike, a donkey, it doesn't matter, and everybody says, that's amazing! He sat down. He's going for a ride. And they start taking their coats off and put their coats on the ground, and, they, and then somehow they, they all know the lyrics to the same song. It's like, what, what's going on? I've never, had th- I've never had that kind of experience. But as we put some puzzle pieces together to understand their life and their experience, a lot of things come, come into focus. So one of the things about sitting on a donkey, it relates to a messianic prophecy. And, they, and we're going to look at that in just a second. And they, they know this, and they, and they say, we think he is the Messiah. We think he's the coming king. And one of the ways that just culturally you would kind of roll out the red carpet for someone, or especially if it was a visiting king, you would take off your coat and say, you know what, this is, this is part of the red carpet, and you'd put that on the ground. And, and then I read this and think, why did they have palm branches? Um, and part of the thing is, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish freedom. Um, prior to the Roman uh, occupation of Jerusalem and, and, the, and Rome being in charge, um, a, palm, a palm leaf was actually on a Jewish coin. That, so it was a symbol of, of Jewish freedom. And they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate what? Passover. And Passover is a reminder of how God rescued them from, the, from Egypt. So the idea of Jewish freedom would have been what they're thinking about. And it was, would have been totally natural for them to have a palm branch because that was a symbol of Jewish freedom. And they, they come here and they somehow they all know the same, the, the same song. And the, what, they, what they recite there is actually taken from, uh, from Psalm 113 to 118. 
And every time they had one of these festivals, seven times a year, they would recite, this was like a liturgy that they would recite when they got together. So in some ways, it was a song that they all knew the lyrics to because this is something that they would have repeated over and over and over again. And in our text, it's, the, it's translated praise God, but that is from Psalm 113 to 118 of Hosanna. They would have understood that. So the prophecy when Jesus gets on a colt, that's what set the whole thing off. And the reason is there's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And here's what it says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, a big part of the first century Jewish educational system was all about helping people understand and memorize big sections of the Old Testament. There was no printing press at this point, so how they would understand and know God's word is to memorize it. So that's what they did in many cases. So they would have been familiar with this, especially as people are asking questions about who Jesus is. They would have been kind of going through in their mind, what are some of the messianic prophecies? Is he the Messiah or is he not? And so the the crowd understands and they say, we think Jesus is the coming Messiah. And that's why they start shouting Hosanna, because the, the word, from, again, from, Psalm, from the Psalms, the word Hosanna has these connotations of we're praising God because he is the God who saves us. So this is a, they are looking forward to praising God because God has sent his salvation. But there's another puzzle piece that we need to talk about. So some of the Jewish background, for me anyway, helps understand why they did what they did and said what they said. But another puzzle piece has nothing, it has nothing to do with the Jewish side of things. It's on the Roman side of things. There was another triumphal entry before Passover into Jerusalem. And it wasn't that Jesus, ended twice, that Jesus entered twice. It was that somebody else came in and there, was a big, and there was a big procession. And it was Pontius Pilate. Pilate, we know from Scripture, was in town that week. Because he comes up in the story later on during the week. And we know from other sources that Pilate, as the Roman governor of Judea, his job was to keep peace and order in Jerusalem, especially during these high holy days when people are coming in from all over the place. Pilate's job was to make sure there were no issues with the Jewish people. There was no uprising. There was no revolts. There were no demonstrations. This, this, his job was to make sure that everything was buttoned up. So Pilate lived um, in Caesarea. I want to show you some maps to kind of help set up what was happening. So this is a map of, of Israel, and there's Jerusalem. That's where all the action is going to take place. So Jesus would have come in from the east, and so would have come across the Jordan, come through Jericho. That's where he healed uh, the man born blind, and then he would have continued coming in. Pilate lived in Caesarea. Caesarea was like a rich resort town um, on the Mediterranean Sea, and that's the road he would have followed. So you see what happens here is you have Pilate coming in and Jesus coming in. Jesus comes in one side and Pilate comes in the other. And the thing that's so interesting about this is Pilate's job is to keep peace and order. And since the Roman government isn't very good at being subtle, uh, Pilate wasn't either. So he would have come in with legions of soldiers. Some would have been on horseback. Some would have been on foot. Some would have been in chariots. This was like, think first century National Guard coming in in full riot gear as a really subtle way of saying, you know, hey, there's going to be no issues this week. So Pilate comes in, and this would have happened every year. So 
this would have been something that people were used to. It would have been in the back of their minds that this is happening. And the contrast is amazing. I mean, just think about it. On the one hand, you have Pilate comes in basically the front door of the city. And then you have Jesus kind of slips in the back door. He comes in the other side of Jerusalem. Pilate comes and he is demonstrating power and control and military might. And Jesus comes in humility, riding on, riding on a donkey. And it's a, it's a donkey's colt. I mean, think about, um, on one hand, if you have, I mean, I, we don't know if Pilate would have been in a chariot or on horseback, or, but he's, he's coming with this, this power, and this is amazing. And Jesus comes in, riding on a donkey's colt. Picture like a grown man riding a, a, a little kid's bike. I mean, this, that's what it is. It's like you have military versus not military. I mean, Jesus, we don't know. Did he have to, like, pick his legs up so he didn't ground out, drag on the ground or stick him out in front of him? I mean, it was such a contrast. And then you have Pilate who's coming essentially to be served. He's coming to, I have a job to do, and you're going to do exactly what I say, and if I want something, you're going to get it, and if I say jump, you're going to say how high. And Jesus is coming to serve others. And Pilate's commitment to carry out his duty is, if he needs to take your life in order to, in order to do it, he'll do it. And Jesus is coming, he's saying, I'm coming to lay my life down as a ransom for people. And there's such a huge contrast between Pilate and Jesus in what was happening. And we don't know if they entered on the same day or not, but we know it happened about the same time. And the people with Jesus would have been aware aware of this. And the really interesting thing is when you look back at Zechariah, we read Zechariah 9, now we're going to read Zechariah 9 and Zechariah 10 because Zechariah Chapter 9, verse 10, has something to do with what Pilate was, with what Pilate was doing. So let's, let's go to Zechariah. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. This is where it gets interesting. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So if they knew their Old Testament. They knew this prophecy. They thought it's about to go down. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and Pilate's com- Pilate is coming in the other side. And there was a group of, of, of Jewish people that they wanted the Messiah. They thought he was going to be a military ruler. And they thought, Jesus is coming in, and he's going to march straight through Jerusalem, and he is going to kick Rome out, and it, we're going to have freedom finally, and we're going to be saved, and this is going to be amazing. And they thought it was going to be a military victory that they thought Jesus was setting up that to happen. And the anticipation of people asking for months, who is Jesus and what exactly is he saying and what's he up to? And then this happens, and the anticipation was huge as they rolled into Jerusalem. So let's go back to Scripture and look at Mark eleven eleven and see what Jesus did. So Jesus, all this anticipation, Jesus came to Jerusalem and went to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left. I'm sorry, I must have, re- I must have misread that. Let me, let me try that again. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, huh, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. And I imagine that's the sound the crowd was making as Jesus got there and turned around and walked out. 
It's, it's almost as if Jesus got to the temple and stood there and looked around and said, well, boys, it's getting late. Let's go home and have dinner. And he turned around and walked back. He just had a two-mile parade coming from Bethany to Jerusalem. And then he turns around and just goes home, probably returns the donkey on the way, which is interesting because he told the disciples to say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. He wasn't kidding. He probably had the donkey for a couple hours. And those people must have been so confused. Like, wait, wait a minute. This is... You're supposed to be over there doing all these things that I had planned for you. And God has a way of not doing things according to our agenda, doesn't he? I mean, Scripture's full of it. Scripture's full of examples of when people think God's going to do one thing and God does something else. Or God does things in a different way than what we expected. And you and I have those stories too. Or we thought God was going to go left and he went right. Or we thought one thing was going to happen and that's not at all what happened. For me, when I was in high school, I had one of those experiences. I was graduating high school and my best friend and I from high school both got a track scholarship. So we went to the same school. And I had, at this point, I knew that God wanted me to go into ministry and I was going to go to college to study to become a pastor. And and I got track scholarship and thought, this is amazing. This is awesome. So I'm going to go run track and I'll learn a little bit about the Bible and this will be great. And um, I remember um, I was sitting in my dorm room, probably very studiously studying. Like a, I wasn't sure I wasn't goofing off or wasting time at all. But so I was sitting in my dorm room and I remember feeling a very sharp, painful, stabbing pain on the left side of my chest. And I tried to stand up, and it really hurt. I, it, was, it was excruciating. So I, I went to the, 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 the athletic trainer, and he sent me to the medical facility on campus, and I kind of bounced around for about a week between different doctors on campus, and eventually they said, Steve, we don't know what's going on, so let's, let's go to the hospital and see, see what, what the deal is. And I did a chest x-ray, and they told me that my left lung had collapsed, in the, uh, which for a runner is kind of a problem. Um, uh, so... Uh, so the, the, the medical term for it was spontaneous pneumothorax, which as a 19-year-old to me just was a fancy way of saying, hey, your lung popped, and we're not really sure why. Um, but it was something that it took me out for the rest of the season. They said, you're just going to have to wait, and, it's, you'll, and eventually you'll be fine. So that kind of took me out of the indoor track season and most of the outdoor season. And through that process, God kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I, called, I wanted you to go study for ministry, but you came here to run track. There's somewhere else I want you to go. So I ended up transferring schools and thought, okay, I'll go to this new school, but I'm still going to walk on and, and, and run track. And um, uh, I was home over Christmas break. I was in the, in the van with my family, and I remember feeling a really sharp, really stabbing, really depressingly familiar pain in the right side of my chest. And this time I knew, I just went straight to, to the emergency room and I walked in and said, I need a, I need a chest tube because my, uh, my right lung has collapsed. And I, I remember the nurse kind of chuckled and said, honey, there's no way you can know that. Uh, let's go do a chest x-ray. So we did a chest x-ray and she came back and said, sure enough, your right lung has collapsed and we need to do a chest tube right now. And I spent the next 21 days in the hospital um, just with, with various chest tubes coming out of my, coming out of my chest and eventually... Uh, surgery to correct the problem. And I learned so much about what it means to trust God 
in that process. I literally learned the meaning of Psalm 46.10 of be still and know that I am God. When you're in a hospital bed and you're, there's, you're not moving, you're not going anywhere. But I learned so much about trusting God and his timing and his agenda, even when it's different from ours. And it's something that that's, that where God took me was so much better than what I had planned. I met my wife, my wife Sarah, at that school, and I made a number of friendships and had a variety of ministry experiences that prepared me for ministry in ways that, that I it wouldn't even come close if I'd stayed at the first school. But it was an amazing op- opportunity for me to learn how to trust God. And I think the point isn't so much where we end up in life, but it's how we learn to trust God along the way. We can get so focused on the destination and where God is going to take us that we, come, that we sometimes can miss out on how God is wanting to work in our lives during the process and, and as we're on the way. And I think that day in Jerusalem, people were so confused. Like, wait a minute, Jesus, I had plans for you. I had, I had, I had an agenda of something I thought you were going to do, and you're not following it. And I'm sure that as the week went on and Jesus was arrested and he was tortured and he was crucified, those people would have been more and more convinced that, G- that they were completely wrong. Jesus wasn't following their agenda at all. Maybe, he, maybe he's not even the Messiah. He's just so far off. What he's doing is not at all what they thought he was going to do. And so they had blinders on. Their expectations and their agenda for Jesus, they basically had blinders on, so they missed what he was doing. They were so focused on their puzzle piece and what they thought it meant that they missed what Jesus was going to do. And I don't want that to be true for us. I don't want us to have blinders on that we miss what God is doing all around us. So how can we continue to trust God and follow him even when life doesn't work out the way that we thought it would? Well, I think there's a couple things. I think first, it's us understanding deep down that God's ways are best, that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy. And that's why it's important for us to spend time in his word reading about all the times in, in history that he has been good and faithful and trustworthy to people in the past. And that's why we need to share stories with each other, and especially at times of baptism, of celebrating, this is what God has done in my life, and here's the way that God has provided for me, and he has walked me through life, even when I wasn't sure what was, what was going to happen. I've seen him be faithful. We need to be sharing those stories with each other. And I think it's the second thing is us remembering that God sees the picture on the top of the box. He knows what's going on. All we have is a puzzle piece. Ooh, this one has an edge. All right. So all we have is this one little puzzle piece. But God sees the bigger picture. And I know there's so many times where I wish God would show us more. But it's more about trusting God in the process than what the final picture of our life is going to be. In Psalm 119.105, it says something really interesting. It says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And the way a lamp works is you, as you're walking at night, you hold a lamp and it kind of illuminates, you know, a little bit around your feet so you can walk. And at least in my own life, maybe this is true for you, where I have just wished God would give me a giant mag light that I could like shine and see like the next 50 steps of where God wanted me to go. Wouldn't that be so much easier? But the problem is this. If God gave us that mag light and we said, this is the next 50 steps, here's what we would do. We would hand the mag light back to, back to God and say, thank you, I got it. And we would walk 48, 49, maybe even take that 50th step 
and then would turn back and say, uh, excuse me, God, I need that mag light again. But if it's a lamp that shows us the next two or three steps, what are we doing? We take a step and we say, God, is this the direction you want me to go? And it's consistently trusting God, asking for his guidance, and, and following him where he leads us. And that's the point of us learning to trust and follow him more than getting caught up in the final picture. So I want you to take out the puzzle piece that you have. And I want you to think about what does this puzzle piece represent for you? What is it in your life that you say, I'm kind of confused as to what Jesus is doing here. Maybe it's that prayer request that you've been just praying for so long, wanting God to work, and, and, and you're not seeing what he's doing yet, and you're just wondering. Or maybe it's a situation at work, with your, the difficult situation with your boss or a coworker. Or maybe you were recently laid off and you're looking at that, that whole employment, employment piece just saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Or maybe it's a, a difficulty in your marriage or your family. Or maybe it's a diagnosis from a doctor and you're just struggling to understand what that is. But you know exactly what it is at this point. You know what situation this represents. And for some of us, you say, okay, Steve, this is great, but I, I have lots of these puzzle pieces, and I, I need more. And if you need more, take more on your way out. That's great. Seriously, take more. Put them everywhere. That's great. But whatever this puzzle piece represents for you, I want to remind you that God is trustworthy. He's faithful, and he's good, and he has a plan that includes this. And his plan is good because he loves us. We sang about how he loves us and he cares about us. And he has this amazing faithfulness for us. And this puzzle piece is part of it. He's going to do something with that piece. I read an author recently that said, trust is the antidote to anxiety. It's the resolution of worry and the destruction of fear. Trust is the act of my will to give my burdens to God. It's like a muscle. As you exercise it, trust gets stronger. So I want you to make sure that you identify what this puzzle piece is for you. And I want you to take it home and put it somewhere that you're going to see it every day. Maybe you're going to tape it to your bathroom mirror or put it on your nightstand or put it in your pocket that you're going to see it when you're going to feel it when you reach for your keys. Or students, maybe you're going to take it and you're going to tape it inside your locker at school. But I want this to be a reminder that even when you don't understand what's going on, God sees the picture on the box top. He knows what's going on. He has an agenda and a plan that as believers, our life gets to fit into his agenda instead of trying to get his agenda to fit in, you know, what he's doing to fit into my plans. And it's so much better to say, God, I want to fit into your story and your agenda and your plan because he sees the entire picture. And we can say, Hosanna, glory to the God who saves, who, who brings redemption, because we know that he cares about us and he loves us. And we can live with full confidence that he's the only one who can save us. And we can look forward to God working through the puzzle pieces of our life. And as he works through our life and we see how he does that, we can say, God, you're so good. You're so faithful. You're so trustworthy. And your plans are so much better than mine. And God, thank you that you want to work in my life to bring about my good and your glory. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your amazing love for us that is so faithful and good. 
Thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you that you came as the humble king so long ago so that we can find forgiveness and peace through you. Would you help us this week to trust you and your agenda? God, don't let us get so caught up in in our agenda. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them onto you. And would you remind us of how good and trustworthy and faithful you are? Would you meet with each of us in these areas, these puzzle pieces of our lives, where we long to see you work? God, thanks for your goodness and your faithfulness and your grace and your salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.